Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ducks Confidential here with the Oregonian and Oregon Live. I'm James Crepia, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest edition. As we did last week in breaking down Oregon's offense at length, we will break down the defense at length, though that edition will come next week as my position-by-position uh, position breakdown and analysis of Oregon's depth chart continues on OregonLive.com. You can check that out. As I continue through the defense, then we will get into the full defensive discussion as well as special teams, but that edition will come next week. This edition of the podcast will be spent breaking down some of the many questions that have to be answered before the start of the college football season. Uh, if there's going to be a college football season, that these an- these questions really have to be answered uh, in some way, shape, or form. And we are taking it from the most broad perspective uh, and absolutely wide lens uh, in order to encompass as many of the many issues uh, on the table as possible. Because while scheduling possibilities and theories and ideas are vast, both in the Pac-12 and at Oregon and across the country. To explore every single one of those is really a fool's errand and a bit of a waste of time at this point because there's just so much uncertainty. What is far more useful is to take it from a much bigger and wider perspective and understand the issues that will impact what will go into deciding any one of those scheduling scenarios, whether it be all 12 games as presently scheduled for all schools, whether it be conference only, whether it be conference only plus one or conference only plus two or conference only with 11 games in the Pac-12 or whatever the many scenarios might be, understanding the broader issues will ultimately dictate and answers on the broader issues will ultimately dictate whether or not any of those contingencies have to be explored at all. And, while it's great to formulate and contemplate every one of those, uh, at this time, there's no reason to get into every single one of them at length because the very notion of them or the possibility of some of them is exactly that. It's just a notion of possibility or contingency, but there's not a lot of meat on the proverbial bones uh, with some of these just yet either. So in some of the many questions, and we'll get into at length on each of them and going chronologically, but going just categorically here, First, defining what an open campus means. Uh, First and foremost, as many presidents and chancellors have said and conference commissioners and athletic directors have said, they likely will not play, or some have outright said they absolutely will not play and have college athletics without an open campus. 
what does significantly modified mean uh, in the eyes of Oregon Governor Kate Brown in terms of large gatherings and how are large gatherings defined? We'll get into that a little bit. The issue of liability and indemnification, uh, force majeure as far as contract language and applicability of non-conference game contracts, uh, testing and what happens if an athlete or any member of a college athletic department program, etc., test positive, what happens, and ultimately the, where the authoritative uh, power lies in whether or not college football is played. So going through just sequentially, and just and these are just some of the many, many issues, but these are some very broad scope issues. So to tackle each one of these topics in general, uh, in order to lay these out as we know them now, and then further dis- you know, decisions and discussions will happen in the weeks and months ahead, some of these will get answered, and then it brings up other questions thereafter. But these are the most broad and all-encompassing sort of topics. So the, to the first of what an open campus means, as again, many presidents and chancellors have said it. Larry Scott of the Pac-12 has been very consistent with this. Many of the conference commissioners have been consistent with this. I know that several others uh, have started to hedge a little bit and indicate that, well, perhaps maybe you don't actually have to have on-campus uh, instruction in order to have college athletics be played in order to have the athletes back on campus taking part in whatever sport of their choosing. Uh, in order to do that, maybe you don't need an open campus. Maybe you don't need uh, on-campus instruction. Some have indicated that's the case. Most have not. Most have been steadfast, and especially in the Pac-12, have been steadfast that in order for college athletics to return, the colleges themselves, as far as on-campus instruction, dorm life, and all the rest, that everything that you know and like and enjoy about the college experience is back in some way. Not back, perhaps, to what the fall of 2019 was, but back in some way. And that anything less than that would be a roadblock in the process. Now, how that's defined specifically for Oregon, that's up to Oregon President Michael Schill and the Board of Trustees for the university and deciding what an open campus truly means for them. Uh, They are working through their process. We have tried to reach out to uh, President Michael Schill via spokeswoman, and he has refused on numerous occasions to either respond at all or provide any clarity as to what an open campus means. Uh, The Oregon Academic administrators have held, uh, along with President Schill, have held uh, virtual town halls, video town halls, uh, on occasion throughout the course of the pandemic to provide a little bit of clarity uh, to the campus community in this regard and some of the things they're working on and some of the plans they're working on and all the rest. Uh, But as one could expect, the situation is extremely fluid. They're working through a lot of different issues, uh, including class sizes, uh, how to maintain a degree of physical distancing uh, in all classes, and then are smaller classes taught in larger rooms to provide more room for distancing, or larger classes just done online, all those sorts of questions. Again, all those fall under, ultimately, the greater issue of, is the campus open? Then all the functionality questions and uh, implementation questions of what that actually entails largely falls in the academic side, obviously. 
how it impacts athletics is it's a barrier to entry. It's a barrier to start the games for most, for most. Obviously, the announcement and news from the California State University system and what that means to schools specifically like Fresno State, San Diego State, San Jose State is actually still unclear. Uh, While on the most broad scope, uh, there has been the basically declaration from many uh, conference commissioners and presidents and chancellors that this is absolutely mandatory to have campuses open for many of them uh, in order to have athletics back even after the Cal State University's uh, systems announcement that they would be having classes in the fall taught uh, almost exclusively online. Remember, again, here we are again saying almost exclusively. It's not 100%. So what degree of wiggle room is there, if any? And even after that announcement, the athletic directors for Fresno State, San Diego State, San Jose State, along with the conference commissioner of the Mountain West, where they all belong, issued a joint statement saying no decisions have been made on athletics as for the fall. So these are, I'm not going to say competing agendas because they're not acting uh, against one another by any means. They are acting in concert, but ultimately what happens on the academic side is going to impact what happens on the athletic side. So what does that mean for Oregon and what does that mean in the Pac-12? It means that at the moment, as of at any point in May, not just May the 18th, but any day in May so far, the position has been that campuses have to be open in order for college athletes to return to campus and for games to be played. Well, how do we define what open is? And that's as ambiguous and undefined as you can really find a term right now. Every college and every university in the country is working on defining what an open campus means for them as of the fall of 2020. That answer is probably not going to come any time in the month of May. It may or may not come during the month of June, quite honestly, uh, for schools where their academic calendar is like Oregon's and you're on a quarter system and the term doesn't begin until October 1st. You may not have to decide every one of those details just yet. So, But that nevertheless is a major part of the process and has to be known before the start of the academic calendar as far as athletics is concerned because athletics calendars do not coincide perfectly and match up perfectly with the academic calendars, as we know. So that's the first of many questions that has to be answered. The second, and this is much more localized, is what does, quote, significantly modified, close quote, mean in the eyes of Oregon Governor Kate Brown when she was referring to large events and large gatherings, saying that, the current recommendation as of earlier this month, nearly two weeks ago, uh, that the current recommendation of the Oregon Health Authority was for large gatherings to be canceled or significantly modified through at least September. That was, again, the recommendation. So we are dealing in all sorts of uncertainty and ambiguity at the moment uh, when it comes to large gatherings, which is another term that has to be defined. What is a, quote, large, close quote, gathering? as defined by the state of Oregon, by its public health authorities, by the governor. When we're talking about football games or any sport, really, we're obviously discussing it in the context of football because it has the biggest crowds and generates the most money. But it could be for any sporting event, whether it be high school or college football, whether it be uh, the women's soccer team, whether it be volleyball, anything, any larger event. 
how do is that defined? Is a large gathering twenty five people in a certain degree of space, fifty, a hundred, a thousand? We don't know yet. Uh, and again, everything is in relative terms by way of space. Are we talking about in a lecture hall? Are we talking about in a mall or theater or movie theater? Or if we're talking in the context of stadiums, obviously the square footage <laughs> is much, much larger than we're talking about inside of a bar or restaurant or shopping center or something like that. So a, a large gathering as defined by the government is going to be different in September than it is in May or than it was in April or March. So what exactly that means will then impact what significantly modifying such a thing also means. Because this has a direct impact on whether or not there's fan attendance at all at sporting events for Oregon, for Oregon football, for any of Oregon's sporting events. In the fall, at least in September, if not for most of the fall of 2020, how do you define a large gathering? As we know it today, larger gatherings uh, from public health officials, they one vary even sometimes from state to state what that might be as far as groups need to be less than 10 or less than 20 or whatever the case is. But as phasing of reopening increases and goes along in the timeline, as the summer comes along, and as we all hope that the efforts to better contain the pandemic are beneficial and work out in a positive way, if those trends continue, then what is permissible by all sorts of municipalities, locally, federally, etc., what they define a large gathering is, is going to change. It may not change all the way back to, again, what was known to be a large gathering in the fall of 2019. May? It may not. It probably won't. But can it get to half of that? A quarter of that? A third of that? What does that look like? When you're talking about for Oregon and Otson Stadium, I'd say, based on including what uh, Oregon President Michael Schill had said previously in an interview with CNN, that no, the idea of a packed football stadium is pretty unlikely. I think that's a pretty safe assumption at this point. But how do you define a large gathering in the fall? And can you have a physically distanced crowd? And what does a seating arrangement look like for that within the confines of a large gathering? And by the way, how do we define physical distancing come the fall? These are terms that didn't exist in any of our lexicons just over two months ago. So to start to project what they may mean three-plus months from now, when we didn't even know what they meant at all <laughs> just over two months ago, uh, we're not even at the halfway point in the process from the start of things being shut down uh, and basically our world being turned on its head in mid-March until the process of contemplating what it might mean for a football season in September. So long way to go on that issue in particular. But it plays into the question of fan attendance and to what degree. Because if you can have a physically distanced crowd where people maintain within the stands six feet uh, apart from one another, why should there be restrictions necessarily? Or does it have to be six feet? 
Is that absolutely the number as time progresses? Can it be higher? Can it be lower? Have to define these things and play these things out over the course of time and weeks and months ahead. And so unfortunately, some of these many questions are not going to find answers in the next couple of days or weeks. It's going to take even longer because there needs to be more direction from governments who ultimately have a lot of the authority here. The governments have to define some of these things and the public health authorities have to define these things and they need more time and more data. So it's not going to be decided, as I say, in the next couple of days or weeks. It's going to take a little more time than that. To the next question of liability and indemnification, colleges and universities across the country are seeking clarity as to the issue of liability. And the same applies to college athletics. Will waivers of liability and protections be part of the reopening process and be part of the uh, restarting of college athletics process? What are the optics of that, quite frankly, uh, whether it be just on the academic side and or if you bring in the athletic side? What does having tens of thousands of college students sign waivers of liability protection look like if that's actually required? That's a pretty tall hurdle, quite honestly, in an entire process as colleges and universities and businesses, for that matter, across the country all look for clarity in terms of the liability question, and in which case indemnification comes in. Will governments, whether that be at the federal level or state level, where they grant such indemnification broadly without waivers, as that's already the case with much of infectious disease spread previously, uh, and albeit in a far different context, we're not going to go down the road of the, the science and all that. That's a whole other conversation, but is that going to be uh, how this is approached with the pandemic, or will there be a whole other issue of liability and indemnification when it comes to COVID-19? Either way, on the liability question, as to how governments will handle it, what will actuaries and insurance companies have to say in all this matter? Because then you really get into liability uh, and protections there. What happens to athletes in particular, because we're talking in the athletics context, who aren't comfortable returning to a campus or playing or can't return due to travel restrictions or won't return or play due to underlying health conditions that make them more susceptible to severe illness or worse due to COVID-19. What happens to those athletes? To those students is broad in, in the broad sense as well, uh, but that's for the universities to answer for the general student population. Uh, but for the athlete population, what does that mean in terms of their scholarships, in terms of their place uh, on a program, uh, on scholarships, place on a team, process going forward? What do those things mean if a college athlete on any degree of scholarship is asthmatic or has uh, an autoimmune disease or any number of other issues, what happens to those folks if they are not comfortable playing? Or even if they are comfortable, for somebody who has an underlying condition, if they are to contract the coronavirus and COVID-19, 
what happens even if they just get sick let's not go down the most dire of consequences just to start with even if they choose to return then what happens to them if they contracted them specifically because they had an underlying condition in the first place and in some cases particularly in the college athletics some of these underlying conditions aren't diagnosed yet unfortunately and that's been an issue that's been present for many many years we see this all the time in the pre-draft process particularly with the nfl side we're talking about with college football where college football players have played for three to five years they've been part of a major college or university department and program and all of the uh, resources that are available there But all of a sudden, they go to the NFL Combine, and 30-plus NFL doctors look at them in the course of a day, and and all sorts of tests are are conducted, and all of a sudden, a significant health issue is discovered that had not been known about before. And some of them are quite severe. Some of them are career-ending. And these young men have played, as I say, three to five years at a major college or university with this and obviously very fortunately did not have it impact them, but they didn't even know. Well, that was already existing. That was happening for years now. What happens now in the midst of pandemic where having any one of these underlying conditions diagnosed or otherwise obviously is that much more concerning when you're talking about uh, a highly infectious and significantly more deadly disease. What happens to those folks? All of the issues of liability and indemnification and how it's applied through every facet of college operations and college athletic operations, There, you could take all day to go through the sheer vast variety of questions that need to be covered on that issue. We, we could literally take hours delving into every which facet and how it could be applied. But in the most broad sense, the issue of indemnification and the issue of liability and where it lies and uh, if if there is not uh, liability to colleges and universities and their athletic departments in general, then even without direct liability, what that might look like in terms of insurance and actuaries and cost on even against uh, um, certain degrees of legal liability. There's still, uh, because you get into law, and is particularly insurance law and all this, these matters don't get cleared up in the span of one or two sentences. These are incredibly complicated issues. So, and again, you, you could take all day to get into a lot of them. But bottom line, the issue of indemnification and liability uh, is massive. Uh, for the college, colleges and, ath- and college athletics as a whole, and they say really in every walk of life right now for all businesses, Uh, This is an issue as well. To the issue of force majeure and contract language, contract law, and how it may or may not apply. For Oregon, in the context for the Ducks, this comes in with uh, non-conference game contracts because those are contracted games, whereas Pac-12 games are not contracted games. They're league games. Uh, No Pac-12 team is playing another paying another Pac-12 team to play them uh, in terms of conference play. That's not how that works. So the contract language for non-conference football games includes 
force majeure clauses. And in those clauses, they spell out all sorts of reasons why a game would have to be canceled. Uh, For instance, unforeseen, literally this is the direct contract language in Oregon's non-conference game contracts with North Dakota State, Ohio State, and Hawaii. The force majeure clause says, a game shall be canceled if it becomes impossible to play the game by reason of an unforeseen catastrophe or disaster such as fire, flood, tsunami, hurricane, terrorist act, or act of political sabotage, war, or confiscation, any order of government, military, or public authority, or any prohibitory or injunctive order of any competent judicial or other government authority, civil or military. So, when it comes to force majeure as a whole in contract law, first there comes the issue of the actual language I just read the exact language in Oregon's non-conference game contracts. There has already been stories written about the legal opinions of whether or not a pandemic is covered by force majeure clauses or not if it does not specify the word pandemic. Of course, one could read the clause in Oregon's non-conference game contracts and say, an unforeseen catastrophe and spelling out all sorts of acts of God and natural disasters and all the rest and say, how could a pandemic possibly not be covered by this when you cover as many things? And that would be a fair position, especially when you bring in acts of government orders and the rest. The other opinion is the law is the law as literally written. And if a in contract law, if it's not written, it's not there. So if a pandemic is not specifically written as pandemic, well then, no, it does not apply. That's the other legal opinion. Where it then comes in to the issue of government order is, and how it would apply to Oregon is as follows. Again, Oregon Governor Kate Brown's previous remarks earlier this month were that the recommendations from the Oregon Health Authority, as we know it, as of May the 7th, Not as of September the 5th. Big gap between those two dates. But the recommendation, as of May the 7th, was for large gatherings to be canceled or significantly modified through September. Obviously, Oregon's three non-conference football games are all played in the month of September, as well as uh, some additional events. But we're just talking about the non-conference football games. Canceled or significantly modified. Recommendation. Lots of ambiguity. Lots of wiggle room. But to the issue of if any of Oregon's non-conference games have to be changed in any way, even if we're just talking about delayed, let alone outright canceled or the rest, that would have to require a change to the game contract as we know it. How that works in terms of the payments that are tied to those contracts is where the issue lies. Because if you could break a contract with no cost to you, well, then there's no real major concern and angst in the whole process. But that's, generally speaking, not how a lot of contracts work. Uh, so Oregon is paying Sandy, uh, North Dakota State $650,000 to play the game on September the 5th. And it's paying Ohio State $300,000 on September 12th. And we'll get that back when it travels to Columbus in 2021 and paying Hawaii a million dollars for the September 19th game. 
Well, if any of those games need to be changed in terms of the dates, in terms of the locations, or they need to be outright canceled, well, does Oregon still have to pay any one of those parties for those games? Or not. But do they? That's the issue and that's the question. As we got into the topic of fan attendance and what large gatherings white might mean and might look like, understanding that revenue is going to be lower under almost any foreseeable scenario due to lower attendance, that's fine, well, and good. But that's there's a difference between lower and zero. And if there's no fan attendance at all, that obviously lowers revenue to near nothing outside of television contracts, though they are extremely significant in this whole equation. But if a game has to be canceled, then you have to look into, well, canceled, but do you have to pay the guaranteed portion of the game contract or not? Obviously, Oregon would prefer not to pay if it's not going to play the game at all. However, if you were the athletic director at North Dakota State or Hawaii in particular, you're going to really fight to receive as much funds as possible because those funds are extremely important to the athletic department budgets at schools like North Dakota State and Hawaii. You don't, and the issue of force majeure and how it ultimately could be used, when we're talking about all the various non-conference game and game scheduling scenarios that have been kicked around out there for several weeks now, and are going to continue for several more weeks. But to the topic of any changes of conference only and all these other adaptations, 10 games, 11 games, anything other than the 12 games as we know it, any of these possi- what none of these possibilities have spelled out uh, so far in gross detail is how the games that would be canceled are canceled. Because again, you bring in, all right, there's only so many ways to do it. You don't just declare a game canceled. Well, due to what? Well, obviously the pandemic. Well, to you it's obvious, but to somebody else it's not. Because the implication of invoking a force majeure clause is saying that there is absolutely, unequivocally, no way possible for a game to occur, to then turn around and play a full conference schedule on dates very close thereafter. And Oregon's in a position where it's three non-conference games lead off the season, so perhaps there is more wiggle room for the University of Oregon and Oregon Athletics insofar as if there is an active executive order for any reason from Governor Kate Brown in the month of September... That may not still apply in later dates, either in later September or October, November, etc. But there are many other schools who do not play all of their non-conference games to lead off the season in September and August. There are many others who have non-conference games sprinkled throughout the course of the season, especially later in the season in November. Well, how can you say that you're going to break a game contract and not pay your opponent the agreed to sum due to force majeure, which is basically saying there is no way possible for this game to be played under any circumstance due to catastrophic events. 
but then yet turn around and still play football games the, either the same day, the same week, or a week before, or a week after, well, then th- that's quite an issue of disagreement. You say, obviously, it's due to a pandemic. I say, well, wait a minute, you're supposed to pay me, and that's not so obvious to me when you're playing football a week later. You can't tell me there was no way you could have played it a week ago. And when, as I say, significant sums of money are guaranteed to a very, very, very large number of, whether it's FCS football programs like a North Dakota State or a Portland State for that matter, because Portland State plays at Oregon State this season, or Hawaii, a Mountain West school where we're bringing in all the traveling questions and what may happen for conference schedules and all the like, these sums of money are extremely significant to these smaller schools, whether they be group of five conferences like the Mountain West or they be FCS schools and conferences at that level to act as though, well, there's just going to be this system-wide decision to shift to all conference games and get rid of some of these games or what have you. Sounds nice in conversation to bring up all these scheduling scenarios, but the financial realities of these decisions is enormous to both sides, quite frankly. Because also canceling a game for any school, while there's the implications as to the contract uh, payment for that game, there's also implications into the lost revenue for the host school. And that lost revenue is not only in terms of ticket revenue or the rest, which may or may not matter if fans are not allowed to attend at all, but also the lost revenue in, in terms of the television revenue. Because the game's not played. So there's myriad issues that come in, but in the most broad of senses, dealing with the issue of any changes to football schedules, the overarching issue is about force majeure and contract language and contract law, whether that be home games, road games, neutral site games, which are a whole other topic and issue, but because Oregon doesn't play one of those this season, we're not going to get into it at length. Uh, If this was a year ago, we would, but the issue for USC and Alabama uh, and the game at uh, AT AT&T Stadium is a whole other matter, as obviously the financial terms uh, of that operation are vastly different when there are not a full attendance in the stadium or even half attendance at a stadium for neutral site games. But that issue, again, is entirely different. And because Oregon doesn't play one of those games, we won't we won't go down that road too far. But to any of the changes, whether we're talking about, again, conference only or conference plus one game to get to 10 or conference plus two games to get to 11 or the whole Pac-12 plays everybody and it's an 11-game conference schedule any or any other of the many scheduling possibilities, playing half the season in the fall and half in the winter, playing all of it in the winter in the spring, any mass changes like that to a college football schedule would require changes to contract terms for non-conference football games. Well, in order to do that, there's only so many mechanisms by which to do that and avoid paying your non-conference opponent. If you want to break every contract but pay everybody, well, you're going to be burning through a lot of money to do that. Um, So... That's kind of an issue of last resort, but on the issue of any changes whatsoever to non-conference football game schedules anywhere in the country, you have to address uh, 
the topic of contract language, contract law, and force majeure. And to this point, uh, Oregon Athletic Director Rob Mullins, as of Friday, said that there have been no discussions with the athletic directors and leadership at North Dakota State, Ohio State, or Hawaii about any changes to those games or about invoking force majeure so far. And on the topic that had gained some traction among fans about the idea of flipping the sites of the Oregon-Ohio State series. Again, Ohio State's supposed to visit Autzen Stadium September 12th, and then Oregon's supposed to visit Columbus, Ohio in 2021. Because Ohio Governor Mike DeWine seems much more keen on football being played in his state in 2020 than Oregon Governor Kate Brown so far, there has obviously been great consternation, but also uh, the topic of flipping the sites for Oregon to travel to Ohio State so that the chance the of the chance of the game are seemingly higher uh, if it's played in Ohio this year, again, as of May. Uh, that has been a thought of among a pretty large contingent of fans out there of both schools. And that topic has also not been discussed between Oregon and Ohio State yet. According to Rob Mullins, uh, though he did admit he has spoken with Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith recently, they have a long professional relationship going back several years. They've recently served in the College Football Playoff Selection Committee together, so they know each other very well. But he said that the topic of flipping the series uh, in terms of the sites, that that has not been uh, among their topics of discussion as of yet, and it may never be. To some other lasting issues uh, and topics that have to be examined and uh, answers found uh, well before the college football season. The issue of testing, what is testing capacity for any locality across the country, but on the most localized of levels, what is testing capacity when it comes to is every athlete going to be tested and with what degree of frequency? Is it going to be once when they come back? Is it going to be sporadic? Is it going to be random? Is it going to be massively applied on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis, multiple times a week basis. What is the process and what does that look like? And while many pro sports leagues are also tackling this issue, it is wildly different to deal with this at the college level because, first and foremost, there is no union (laughs) negotiating for them, for one. Two, the sheer vast numbers of it. A professional sports league may only have several hundred or less than a couple of thousand players, coaches, and people as part of their operations to have to test at any one time. And there was already blowback, obviously, uh, back in March in particular when professional teams were being tested and there were very, very low number of tests. As testing capacity increases across the country... That issue is becoming easier for organizations in sports and otherwise uh, to tackle independently, but in the sports context, and it's very different conversation in a pro sports franchise or a whole league that has the numbers it has versus a college athletic department that may have more athletes in it and coaches and staff and support staff and all the rest. It, a college athletic department may have more people tied to it who would have to be tested than in the entire NBA. And some of the larger athletic departments in the country, that is the case. So 
it's a wildly different uh, economies of scale. And how do you apply that on the local level? Now, again, testing capacity is going up everywhere across the country. It's also still not sufficient at many, many places. So the whole issue is for a separate, separate place, separate conversation. But how it applies to uh, college athletics is what this testing and the testing mechanisms and availability look like for college athletics and what will be either desired, required, and the like. Again, that, that's going to be sorted out in the months ahead. No one's going to have an answer for that of what August looks like in absolute terms as of May. Unfortunately for Oregon uh, and the University of Oregon, both academically and athletically, Lane County has been very, very fortunate uh, in its numbers combating uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19, and its testing capacity has gone up significantly and will continue to go up significantly in the weeks and months ahead. So what that might mean to the athletic department and the athletics operation come the fall, really anyone's guess at this point on the capacity and availability question. On the second question of testing, which has been examined at length uh, and will continue to be because there's not definitive terms yet, is still what happens when someone tests positive, whether that's an athlete, coach, support staff member, anybody part of a college football team operation. What happens to the team? Uh, Are the individual or individuals quarantine but the team continues does everybody get tested immediately uh does the entire enterprise continue without the one or two or three or however many uh infected individuals there are does the entire operation continue without those couple of people does the entire team and operation shut down for a week or two weeks it's the great unknown right now the only context that we have so far, largely, it obviously goes back to the Utah Jazz and Rudy Gobert testing positive, and that was a stopping point for the NBA and then much of the American sports landscape in the days thereafter. However, that has changed recently over the last week or so as professional sports entities are looking to return or are returning and are increasing their testing capabilities and capacities. And when the UFC holds an event in Jacksonville, Florida, and has a fighter test positive along with two of his cornermen, but continue with the event because those individuals were quarantined and separated, but the rest of the fighters and everybody else in the operation tested multiple times and tested negative, well, that's different. Now that's different than where we were in March where a positive test shut down entire leagues and and continues to shut down entire leagues. As leagues look to return, as testing capacity increases, the possibility of a positive test leading to a shutdown universally has decreased. And again, in the professional sports leagues, they're looking to figure out ways to continue operating even amid the possibility of a positive test occurring. That would be a paradigm shift in the conversation across the board, in any, whether it be in college athletics and in, in regular walks of life and industry. It would be a major paradigm shift, just as the Gobert positive test was a paradigm shift for sports 
back in March. But again, when you're talking in professional sports, they have unions. They have legal representatives. They have people operating on their behalf, negotiating on their behalf. College athletes don't have any of these things because they are not considered employees. So what are the protections for those groups, which are far larger in number because of the sheer vast volume of schools and volume of sports compared to the professional leagues. The issue of testing and the issue of what happens when someone tests positive has to be tackled. And lastly, who ultimately has the authority to determine whether or not football is played or not in the fall. Uh, as Oregon president, uh, Michael Schill had detailed in a Q and a with John Canzano on OregonLive.com that you can check out. Uh, he tackled that um, among a series of questions that uh, John opposed to president Schill the issue of who ultimately has the authority. It starts, obviously, with the governor's office and then reaches uh, local health authorities, whether that's the Oregon Health Authority or those in Lane County as well. So there's all sorts of barriers to entry and barriers to the return of college football and college sports as a whole, starting on the government side with the governor's office and local health authorities, then on the academic side with is a campus open or not, an issue that we discussed earlier. And then finally, if the go-ahead is given from all of those many layers of the process, then you get finally to what actually resuming looks like and tackling some of the others. So those are some of the many, many questions that have to be answered before the return of college sports, hopefully in the fall of 2020, as more of those questions are answered and more clarity is provided. We'll provide more by way of feedback and by way of discussion and breakdown and analysis of what the next steps in the process look like. But ultimately, wanted to lay out for folks what the many topics are involved on the most broad scale before delving into is Oregon going to play all 12 of its games as, as scheduled or not. Before you can even get down that road, you have to cross so many other topics off the list. So those are the topics as of today. As those answers are provided and as other questions arise, we'll bring them to you right here with the Oregonian and Oregon Live and on the Ducks Confidential Podcast.